And he wrote me a note to remind me. I'm sorry. So apparently I need to be reminded again. So I'm sorry. It, it, it's my fault. Okay. Well, anyway, be sure and, and, and wish her happy birthday. It, is that today? Today. Today's her birthday. Okay. Okay, so who or what is God in the Bible? Back to our lesson. Um, your whole walk with God, including your decision to repent and be baptized and to allow God to feed with the Spirit, is a walk of faith. It is a walk that is based on faith. If you have no faith, you cannot be saved. It's that simple. And let me tell you, if you do not have faith, there will come a day when you will have faith. Because you will know that there really is a God. Faith is given in measure. Um, when my brother got filled with the Holy Ghost, my oldest brother, Tom, he was given an incredible amount of faith. Like the first thing he did after he prayed through was go lay hands on somebody and heal them of something. And it was amazing. And he just has a lot of faith. He's got that gift of faith. Um, now, others may not have that faith, but you, you have a measure of abiding faith. And believe it or not, you have a measure of miracle faith. And faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. In context, in Romans 10, that's, that's talking about um, the preaching of God's word. That is, the faith to believe comes by the preaching of God's word. Nobody is saved without a preacher, ever. Now, it doesn't have to be a preacher in a church, on a pulpit, or on a platform. But at some point, it doesn't even have to be a licensed preacher, it could be you, somebody that is standing in front of them and telling them and explaining to them what the gospel is. That is how it works. Angels cannot deliver that message. That's why uh, the angel of the Lord in Acts chapter 10 had to tell Cornelius and his household, go to Peter's house. He will tell you what you ought to do because I can't tell you. That has been delivered into the hands of men. But, but it takes faith. In order to be saved, then it takes faith in order to stay saved. Think about any good marriage. Now, there's a lot of marriages. They're not all good. Many of them are. But the marriage, that marriage did not start off perfectly. I know a couple that has been married. It's uh, Brother and Sister Agnew in St. Louis. It's over 70 years. He's blind and she can't hear. Seriously, he's nearly 100 years old. And they cannot remember life without each other. It isn't that... That might, that might be the perfect marriage. I don't know. <laughs> of course, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just teasing. Um, <laughs> I hope my wife doesn't listen to this online. <laughs> She's not here, so that's a good thing. Okay, so uh, people don't get married, then all of a sudden celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. It doesn't work like that. I remember getting married 19 years ago and thinking, man, one day we're going to be married for five years. And it was like, that was like so long. It was like, oh, five years, that's going to be awesome. And then it was like, and then I thought one day we're going to be married 10 years. And now it's like, wow, next year it'll be 20 years for us. And uh, that's, the years just fly by. But that, but no marriage starts off perfect. Uh, so that couple would have had to make a decision to know one another. And then they decided to trust one another enough to stand at that altar and say, I am going to trust my heart to your love and care for the rest of my life. Vows are taken, but nobody really knows how bad that person who is holding your hand and looking you in the eye may or may not ever hurt you. I have a friend of mine that was married for over 23 years. And suddenly, without any warning, his wife just decided to get up and move out. They were apostolic 
He was, she was too. They went to church. They served God together. They were quizzing coaches. They, they were used. And then just like that, she just up and walked off. And literally overnight, I mean, it wasn't, backside never happens overnight. But, but from the signs that we could tell, there was apparently no warning signs. of It's just like one morning, just bam, this is what I'm going to do. And she never came back. And, uh, and they are still divorced today. So that's not meant to strike fear in your heart, but it's just a point that you are trusting that person. You do not know what the future holds. So in the same manner, you have to make a decision to place your trust and your faith and your confidence in that person. It takes that same type of faith in your relationship and in your commitment with God. I was talking to somebody um, just I think it was Monday night, and this person was, was, was really discouraged about some events that's happened in this person's life. And I told her, I said, you know, every season, you know, uh, life, comes with season, life comes in seasons. And you have to take the good with the bad. It's not all going to ever be good, and it's not all ever going to be bad. And many times, I would say all the time, when God gives us a promise... He tells us the good things of that season that will come happen to us. But he doesn't always tell us the struggles. I know that there are pastors that have taken over churches and ministry positions and other things. And had they known the things that they knew later and would, would know, they wouldn't have taken it. So, 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 so in, in your life, don't live your life like... You know, like one day I'm going to reach this golden pot at the end of the rainbow and everything's going to be perfect. Because it will never happen like that. Life comes with a struggle. And so you have to take the good with the bad. But more importantly and most importantly, you have to learn to trust God. It is impossible to prove that God exists. But consider the fact that it is just as impossible to prove that he does not exist because at some point every person is going to put their faith somewhere or in something. Some will choose God. Some will choose science. But everyone has some element of faith. The person that has the most faith is the evolutionist to believe that somehow out of nowhere a big bang just happened and all of this just came into existence all of this organized universe. I mean, it would be like, you know, saying like this explosion happened and the Empire State Building just built itself. That takes more faith than faith in uh, a creator who designed all things. And so we're not making fun or poking fun at atheists but, or evolution. We're just saying it takes a lot of faith. They are putting their faith in something that can, cannot and has not ever been proven scientifically. When you awoke and you went into the bathroom this morning, you flipped on the light switch and you had faith that it was going to work. When you got in your car, you turned the key and have faith that it's going to start, or at least hope that it starts, unless it's a cold winter morning. And, and then you're really praying that it will start, maybe. When you mail a letter, you have faith in the postal system, hopefully, that it will get to the right address. Years ago, I knew a man who was an atheist, and he kept hounding me, you know, prove that there is a God, prove that there is a God. And so finally, this is what I did. I got this large white sheet of paper. And just, just pretend for a minute that this screen behind me, everything on that screen might represent like every, every 
thing that there is to know in the known and unknown universe. So like every book that has ever been written, every scientific law, uh, all of the laws that govern our universe and all the billions and, and of, of untold galaxies that there are out there. That space between these four corners, this black area, in, in the case of the white paper, it was a white area, represented all the source of all knowledge, everything there is to know. And then I said, and I put that paper down on the desk, and I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to draw a line or a dot or a square or something, and that dot represents everything that you know in comparison to the known universe. And he drew this tiny little bitty dot, little bitty dot in the middle of the paper. And I said, now... Albert Einstein, as smart as he was, as far as I know, he was the smartest man that I've ever read about. His dot would probably be two or three times that because he was an intelligent man. And I said, my dot would probably be half the size of yours because you probably know more than I do. But I said, that dot represents everything that you know, not just about planet Earth, but about like, all, like every piece of information that there ever is to know. So that if you know, every, if, if your dot was to fill up this paper, then that would mean I could ask you any question and you would know it. About any universe, about any scientific law, all the things that have yet to be discovered. You know them all. And his dot was this little bitty tiny dot in the middle of it. And I said, could it be that since there is so very much that you don't know, that... God exists out here in this white area instead of in the tiny little dot that represents what you know. Do you understand that? And that is how God is. We say God cannot be proven, but he can be shown. How can he be shown? He can be shown by creation. It's like standing in the middle uh, of the Empire State Building and saying, prove to me that there's a designer of this Empire State Building. I don't see him. Well, there had to be a designer because there is an Empire State Building. Somewhere there is a designer of that building. And so because we have a universe, because we have trees, and because we have an earth, and because, I mean, think about how, how intelligent you would have to be to by yourself design a building that would last as long as some buildings have lasted in Europe, like the Empire, not the Empire State, um, the Leaning Tower of uh, of Pisa and, and towers like that that have stood for centuries. Think, think of how intelligent you would have to be to design a building like that. And yet we are talking about a God that didn't just design a building. He designed a whole universe. And furthermore, he made it out of absolutely nothing. We can't make anything out of nothing. I mean, there's a scientific law that says neither created nor destroyed. Everything goes somewhere. If you, if you were to take this pulpit right here and you were to burn it up, you're not really, you're not destroying it. You're destroying the pulpit, but it just changes form. It turns into ashes. So it's there in another form. So nothing is created and nothing is destroyed. But with God, he can take something that is truly nothing and make something out of it. And yet we think we can understand God. We think we can know God. It would be like, here's another example. It would be like this. Um, it would be like me trying to explain my ways and the things that I do to a little tiny flea. You think that flea can... If I were to take that flea and I were to put it in my hand, I would say, okay, now flea, if I named him Freddy. Okay, Freddy flea, 
I'm going to get up this morning, and, and I'm going to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. Can that flea ever say, what? Flea can't even understand what I'm saying. But if it could understand English, there's no way that I could be able to explain all the things that I do. And how much more intelligent do you think that God is than us, who designed all things, who is eternal, who is omnipotent, who knows all things? And so God is not meant to be understood. He is meant to be trusted. We cannot understand God. Just like that flea cannot understand, you know, why did all this evil come into my life? It's okay to ask that question, but understand you may or may not get your answer right now. You may not ever get it. You may not get it ever. But you have to trust God. So there is order and there is design, and that demands a designer. Look at Psalms 19 and verse 1 with me. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. So there we have it again. Two things that show the existence of God are your conscience and God's creation. Two things. Your conscience automatically teaches you the base knowledge that there is a God. You know, years ago, whenever Christopher Columbus first came to the Americas, of course, he thought he was in India, but those, those Native Americans... They spoke of the great spirit, even though they had been, you know, without any kind of teaching from, from that civilization, from England. They knew nothing about Jesus Christ or Christianity. They knew nothing about that. But yet, in their um, basic understanding, they knew that there was a great spirit. So, because God implants that in our DNA. There is, there is an innate understanding within us that there is a God. You have to be taught that there is no God. That is learned. But the basic understanding that there is a God is, is, is not learned. It is taught by the Spirit. God puts that into our DNA. We automatically know that there is a God. So our conscience teaches us that there is a God. Secondly, the creation shows us that there is a God. So you might not ever see God with your human eyes while on this earth, but this is part of what pleases God, is trusting Him without seeing Him face to face yet. Look at Hebrews 11 and verse 6, which says, But without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, or in other words, that God exists, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If I could today just snap my fingers and make God appear for you here today, that would not take any faith now, would it? If I could say, okay, God is going to show all of us that there is a God. Right now, he's just going to pop up here on this platform. That would require no faith. And sure, you would have proof, but you wouldn't necessarily have faith. And faith is what pleases God. Because God has already given us everything we need to know to show his existence. After one of Jesus' disciples, who was called Thomas, wanted to see his resurrected Savior, Jesus obliged Thomas and showed himself to him. But look at what Jesus said to Thomas in John 20 in verse 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed, but blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Did you know because you have not physically seen the resurrected Savior, you are more blessed than Thomas? Isn't that amazing? When you think about that. You know, we think about, man, I wish I could have been, I've even thought this myself, I wish I could have been alive back there in the days of the Savior to, to see him. But Jesus said, you're more blessed by not seeing him and still believing. Because in that generation, they had to see and believe 
but now we can not see and yet we believe and that makes our faith stronger. So faith is what gives us the confidence we have in Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews 11 and 1 from, this is from the New Living Translation. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. So uh, the Bible declares him, the heavens show the beauty and design of an all-knowing creator and lives have been forever changed to the point that point to God's forever power. So let's talk about a few qualities that God has since we're talking about who or what is God in the Bible. First of all, God is eternal. In other words, God endures. He is not here today and gone tomorrow. I heard um, Sister Vesta Mangan once try to explain the concept of eternity, and this is what she said. She said, pretend that there's a mountain made of steel, and this mountain is the size of Mount Everest from bottom to the very tip top. And she said, once every 1,000 years, an eagle comes and sharpens its beak on the edge of that mountain made of steel the size of Mount Everest. And when once that mountain will have withered away to nothing but a pebble in my hand, Eternity will just have begun. Isn't that an amazing illustration that illustrates the concept of eternity? We really, it really, we really can't understand it. But eternal, eternal is not the same as everlasting. Eternal means without beginning and without ending. So God exists in a realm that we cannot understand. Look at Hebrews 13 and 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Everything in creation changes except God. He is the same as he was a billion light years ago. Before the dawn of creation, before angels ever sang praises to God, before there was even light that existed, before there was anything, God was the same then as he is now, and he is the same then as he will be that much farther into the future. That's because... See, see, so there is, there is something that, this is something that in our finite minds as human beings, we struggle to understand. But that's because we are finite human beings. Infinite is defined as, quote, impossible to measure or calculate, unquote. So infinite means that we cannot measure it and we cannot calculate it. God is infinite. So why do we think we can ever explain him then? Yeah. We have a full revelation of God as far as his character, his attributes, his qualities go in the person and face of Jesus Christ. But to actually be able to explain and understand what infinite is. Again, think of, think of it as the difference between my intellect and understanding and that of a flea. A flea has an extremely limited intellect and ability to understand anything outside of what is already encoded into its tiny little DNA. In comparison to mine, or any, any human intellect, it's light years ahead of a flea. And that's how so much farther God is ahead of us. He's so much wiser. He's so much smarter. One day, we're going to be like him. First John 3 says, Behold, that doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And we too will be eternal, and we will receive eternal life in that day. Look at Psalms 90 in verse 2. It says, Before the mountains were ever brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. 
Revelation 1 and 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. He is the Almighty God, and He is from everlasting to everlasting. Secondly, God is immortal. This means that God is free from death. So science fiction movies and books are often made and written to depict this particular fantasy. Um, But as mortals, we die. All of us will die unless, of course, the rapture happens. God, on the other hand, is immortal and will never see death. He has never seen death except for when he died as a son on Calvary. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 17 says, Now unto the king eternal and immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thirdly, God is omnipotent, omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful. He has all power. That lightning that flashes in the sky, you ever seen a lightning storm? And there's like just lightning flashing every like five seconds. Really quite awesome to behold the power that is in that lightning and how quickly it moves. But in comparison to God's power, that little bolt of lightning is absolutely nothing. It's not even not even a drop in the it's not even a drop in the water. God has all power at his command. He is Almighty, and He is the ruler of all. Matter of fact, I'll go farther than that. I would say that it is impossible for us in our human understanding to understand or explain how powerful God really, truly is. I believe it's impossible for even the angels. I believe they don't even, they haven't even begun to see it. One day, He's going to say, one day He's going to come back, and He's going to utter some words, and the dead in Christ are going to get up out of the grave. King David is going to get up out of his grave. Adam is going to get up out of his grave from thousands and thousands of years ago. That's returned to dust and ashes. But somehow that dust and ashes is going to yield up the body of King David. Praise God. And whether or not, uh, you know, you are even in Christ, one day you're going to get up out of the grave. And you're either going to face judgment or you're going to go with, to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the power of God. We can't even begin to understand it. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. And Jesus rebuked them and he said, you don't even know the power of God. He said, you don't know the the scriptures and you do not know or cannot understand the power of God. Now, God is so powerful. Um, And so 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 12 says, Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Nothing is impossible for God. Matthew 19 and 26, But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Praise God. You need to wake up every morning and you need to memorize that verse. With God, all things are possible. We need to change our thinking. It doesn't matter how bad America is getting, but it does matter. But in the kingdom of God, all things are possible. Hey, God can fill Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump with the Holy Ghost and turn their lives around. Then we got a Holy Ghost filled apostolic in the White House. Wouldn't that be great? You want, you want to sabotage hell? Start praying for God to save their souls. That's what, that's what needs to happen. That's what's truly going to make America great again. Praise God. Any, all things are possible with God. But we can get so bogged down when we look at things from an earthly perspective, which is that with God, how can this happen? How can these things be? That's what uh, 
That's what Mary asked of the Lord. How can these things be? That's from an earthly perspective. That's like what we can say to our problems so many times. How can these things be? But that's from our perspective. We need to try and look at things from God's perspective. If you don't believe it, say it until you believe it. They used to tell us, fake it till you make it. Just keep saying it. Keep looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, with God, all things are possible. Amen. And so, and they are. So, and, and, and also, God is infinite. And this means that God is without limitations of any kind according to time or space. He is immeasurable. If you could travel all the way to planet Mars and stand on the furthest point on planet Mars and lift your hands up if it were possible, God would be there. Right there. If you could travel as far as light can travel towards the end of the, of the known and unknown galaxies, God is right there. He fills the universe with his power. God is a spirit. I've heard people argue that God is a female or God is male. No, no, no. God is a spirit. He became a man as the second Adam, but he, was, he is and remains a spirit, an eternal spirit. John 4, 24, God is the spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Exodus 33 and 20, and he said, Thou canst not see my face, for no man can see me and live, because God is a spirit. Now, people have seen manifestations of God, like when God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. But no man has seen the fullness of God in the entirety of his spirit. And also, God is one, numerically one. And we're not into the oneness of God here. And I'm, I'm sure that we will get into that later. But there are several different names that are used for God throughout his word. Your name is special to you. It identifies and distinguishes you from anyone else on earth. One philosopher claims the sweetest music to any human ear is the sound of his or her own name. If, you are a, if you're not a people person, there's one thing you could do that will immediately make people like you, and that's use their name. People like their name being used. And it's just something really cool. I work with doctors a lot. I never call doctors by their first name unless I've known them for a long time because most of them prefer Dr. So-and-so. But I always make it a habit of trying to remember. And I'm not good with names, but I always try to associate it with something so that I can remember their name, even if it's going back to my desk and writing it, writing it down like 10 times on a sheet of paper, Dr. So-and-so. Because when the next time I see that doctor, if it's six months from now, if I remember their name, they're going to be really impressed by that. And they usually got to look at my name tag to say, oh, Bill, hi, because <laughs> they don't remember me. But, but <laughs> people's names mean something to them. Names have special meanings. When a couple is expecting a baby today, people go to a bookstore and buy a book with like 2,500 name ideas. And usually people don't usually just pick out a name. Out of, the, out of a hat somewhere. It's, it usually like has some meaning or they're naming them after somebody that, that either mentored them or a mom or a dad or a family name, etc. But they may even consider grand names of parents, grandparents, siblings, choosing a name, a special event today. But in the Bible, it was even more of an important event. A person literally was their name. How would you like to be Ichabod? The glory of the Lord has departed. Uh, what's your name? The glory of the Lord has departed. <laughs> and that's how they said it. And that's how you say the glory of the Lord has departed in Hebrew. <laughs> Brother, glory of the Lord has departed. It's going to come up and speak to us tonight. Can you imagine such a thing? 
So, so they literally were their name. Um, uh, remember whenever Isaac was born and Abraham and Sarah, and Sarah laughed. And that's why his name was called Isaac, because Isaac means laughter. Isn't that neat? She named him laughter. Well, that's a cool name. But there are some names where I'm thinking, what were they thinking? Man, you're scarring that poor little child. Uh, you know, you're giving him, you ever heard that song, A Boy Named Sue? It was kind of one of those names, you know. But God changed, Abra- God changed Abraham's name in the Old Testament to Abraham. This is because Abraham means father of many nations. And that is exactly what Abraham was about to become when God made a promise with him. Name was identity. So in our search to understand God, it is important to consider individually the names he used to describe himself. Whenever he was approached in the Old Testament, caution was needed to prevent people from taking the name of the Lord in vain. As you know, that was one of the Ten Commandments. So even before writing the name of the Lord, a Jewish scribe would wash himself and put on a clean linen garment and free himself from any defilement. To this very day, Hebrews, Orthodox Jews will not write the name of God down on a piece of paper. You've seen them write it G-D. The reason they do that is I've heard one, one particular rabbi ask him, just point blank, I don't understand why you do that. And, and he said, it's because we don't want to take the name of the Lord in vain. Somebody could crumple it up and throw it away, and that's defiled the name. See, we, don't, we, we, don't even be, we can't even begin to understand in our little Gentile thinking what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. We use it all day, but we should use it prayerfully in, instead of just casually. Amen. But then that priest would not even uh, write out the whole name for God. He wrote out letters that formed a sound to represent the name for God. So they, they were meticulous about not taking God's name in vain or it ever just becoming like a second nature to them because they did not want to disrespect the name, for, the name of God. So let's take a look at some of the names that he's spoken. I know we've been talking about this on Sunday, right? So here's a little review. Elohim. This is a Hebrew word that's simply translated into our English as God. Elohim, as it's used there, is a plural form. Okay, but it's not plural in the in the sense of several things. Okay, it, it means like the God of many manifestations. That's 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 the whole meaning of it. Like if I said fish, fish is kind of a plural word too. We don't normally say fishes. You could say fishes or fishies. So I heard one little boy say fishies. <laughs> but if he said you said you know, hey, I caught some fish. We know that that would, be, that would be meaning I caught more than one fish. Or you could say I caught a fish and it could be singular. So this is what, kind of like what Elohim is. El is the singular form or, or the abbreviated and singular form of Elohim. So in the very beginning, in Genesis 1 and 1, the Bible says, in the beginning, Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So it, so it starts with a very vague, the Bible opens up with a very vague name for God. So this word Elohim was also used to describe other false gods. When it said the gods of, of the Hittites and the gods of the Amorites, etc., that word there is Elohim. So it's kind of a generic word just as God is a generic word in our English Bible, in our English language. Second, there is the Shaddai. This is translated as Almighty when you combine it with the El Shaddai. El, remember I said, is the singular word for God. So El Shaddai would mean Almighty God. 
Thirdly, there's Yahweh or Jehovah, and that simply means that, um, rather, Yahweh means the self-existent one. And the idea, so this is the name that God revealed himself to Moses out of the burning bush when he said, I am that I am. Okay, that was the meaning of the name of Yahweh. He means the self-existent one. I am that I am. What does that really mean? That means I am, and the reason for my existence is in myself. So that refers to God as the self-existent one or the eternal because he was, he is, and he is to come. Does that sound familiar? It's what Jesus said of himself in Revelation chapter 1. And also there is Jesus, which means Jehovah is or has become our salvation. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Trinitarians are quick to point out that it says the Word was with God, and they say, aha, the Father was with the Son. But they, so what they do is they take the word God there and they insert Father and they take the word there and they insert Son. Well, if that was true, then the verse would read like this. In the beginning was the Son and the Word and the Son was with the Father and the Son was the Father. I'll take that translation. The Son was the Father. That's kind of what we believe. We believe the Father was in the Son, revealing Him, showing Himself. So... Don't let anybody pick your pocket on that. That is a total one, this verse. The word word comes from the Greek word logos, and it means the thought, the plan. I don't have time to really get into that. It would take me an hour to explain it, but the Greeks came up with that concept that means the thought or the plan as it exists in the mind. So what John was saying here was in the beginning, God had a plan. And that plan in the fullness of time was God becoming flesh. And that's exactly what he says in verse 14. And, the, and that plan, that word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God, Jesus, and his word are one. You cannot separate God from his word. It is impossible to separate God from his holy word. When you read the Bible, you are hearing from God. So if we want to continue growing with God, the only way that you and I will do that is to make it a priority to spend time with Him. And those two ways that we spend time with God are prayer and the Word. It's not brain surgery. If you want to grow to be strong in the Lord, we used to sing that song in Sunday school, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. You remember that old song? See, that's that simple. It's what our Sunday school teachers taught us when we were five years old. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Uh, and so we will be taking the next lesson to talk about prayer. But for this lesson, we're going to wrap things up for the next couple of minutes by taking a look at this book called the Bible. The Bible is the word of life, Philippians 2.16, uh, the word of truth, Ephesians 1.13, and the word of salvation, Acts 13 and 26. And as we have talked about in previous lessons, when we are born again, the Bible compares us to newborn babies in Christ who are in desperately need of nourishment. What if a newborn baby was born? And let's say that the mom took it and laid it down in its little bassinet and said, okay, honey, I'll come back, let's say it's... Monday, I'll come back Wednesday night and I'll feed you again. So you just stay right here and it'll be fine. What would happen to that baby between Sunday and Wednesday? Baby's probably going to die. And so that's what happens. Look at first, uh, sorry, Second Peter 2 and 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, 
that you may grow thereby. That is not the verse. Maybe I meant to say 1 Peter 2 and 2. So that was my mistake. But so First uh, Peter 2 and 2 says, and as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So whenever you're born again, you're just a little bitty baby. And guess what? That little bitty baby doesn't know a whole lot of anything. You can't give that baby a steak and say, here you go. Here you go, little two-hour-old two baby. Here's a nice, juicy steak. That baby doesn't even have teeth yet. It's got to feed on milk. And so... You know, whenever new converts come into the church and they're born of the water and the spirit, they may not look like us for a while. And they may not understand everything about us for a while. And you know what? That's okay because that baby at that stage is as perfect as you are at your stage. But if it's still on the bottle when it's 18 years old, now you've got a problem. You've got a big problem. So... You have to grow. You cannot stay on milk. And guess what? Doctrine is meat. And you have to get in that word and you've got to dig into it. So the Bible is divided into two segments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are 66 books. As you know, we call it the Old Testament and then we call it the New Testament because a testament is a document that refers to the wishes or will of a departed person. So the Old Testament is the agreement that God made with man before Christ. Rather, and the New Testament is the agreement that God made, that God has with man about salvation after Christ has come. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew with a few passages scattered in Aramaic. And the New Testament was largely written in the language of Greek. So each testament is divided into five sections. Uh, first of all, we have the Old Testament, also known as the Law. How many books are the Law of the Law of Moses? Does anybody know? Five. Very good. It's also called the Torah or the Pentateuch. Okay, so that's just the fancy word for you know the Jews call it the the Tanakh, and that's the whole what we would call the whole Old Testament. Okay, so so we got the Law, then we got history, which is the next twelve books. We got poetry. Five books, major and minor prophets. There are major prophets, five and minor prophets, 12. The New Testament is also divided into segments. We got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The word gospel just means uh, the news, the good news that Christ has come. So that's why we call them the Gospels. Then we got history and New Testament theology. That's one book. We know what that book is, don't we? Acts. That's right. Then we got Pauline epistles, 14 books. General epistles, seven books, and then we got prophecy, which is one book. Here's a little unrelated little trivia question for you. Who wrote more books in the New Testament than anybody else? Or who wrote more? Paul wrote the most books. Let me finish my question because then ask right. <laughs> you guys are sharp. You know this. So now you know what the answer is not. Who wrote more books than Paul? Who wrote more information than Paul? Luke, that's right, because he wrote the book of Acts on the gospel. See, I knew you guys are smart. You got a good pastor that teaches you this stuff. That's great. So, and I'm saying that because Luke, Luke was not a preacher. He was not an evangelist. He was not an apostle. As far as we know, he didn't even perform a miracle. He was just an everyday Joe sitting on the pews. He was a physician, and he was faithful, and he loved God, and yet God used him to write over 200 verses, over 100 verses more than the great apostle Paul. It's amazing. And without Acts, where would we be? 
I mean, we might be able to do without Luke, but without Acts. When you, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you skip right into Romans without Acts, you know you've missed something. Something has happened that you need to know about. So the book of Acts is key and pivotal to understanding the entire Bible. It could be the, one of the most, it is one of the most, I know every book is important, but, but as far as our understanding of the fulfillment of what it's leading up to. Genesis 1 is leading up to Acts chapter 2. Really, from Genesis chapter 3 on with the fall of man, it leads up to Acts chapter 2. So, that's great. Don't let the devil say that you're not a minister and you can't be used. You can do great things in God. Amen. But what's so amazing about all of this is that in spite of being penned by so many different men, and in many different countries, at different periods of time, there is not one single contradiction in the entire Bible. Now, there are many things that appear to be a contradiction, but when we study them out, they, they are not contradictions. Let me give you an example. In the book of Genesis, it says God rested on the seventh day, but yet in Isaiah, God said, I rest not, neither am weary. And when he's, it seems like a contradiction, right? He rested the seventh day, but Isaiah said he doesn't rest neither is weary. Well, we've got to understand the meaning of the words in Hebrew are different words. In the English, the translators did their best to try and take that meaning, that word, and use in the Hebrew and, tried, and did their best to try and explain it as simple as they could in the English. But in the Hebrew, there's two different words. The word rest in, in Genesis Chapter one, when it, or chapter two, when it says God rested from His creation, it means it means that He sat back and He enjoyed it. Just like I'm going to sit back and enjoy some French fries after I get done here. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's that, but that's the idea of rest in the Hebrew there. But when when Isaiah said I rest not in this weary, it means what you're going to do at some point tonight. You're going to go home and you're going to sleep and lights out. So there are many things that appear to be contradictions, but when you look deeper into them. Somebody wrote a book called The Encyclopedia of Biblical Errancy. It's exactly what it sounds like. It, it was some, some doubter, and I, I came across it 10 or 15 years ago in a bookstore. I used to love to go to bookstores and just thumb through books. It's the cheapest way to read books, right? And I, I, would, I would get a book and just sit down and be Dalton or Walden Bookstore on my, on my lunch hour, and I would just read it, and I found this book. And so this, this guy set out to prove that the Bible has contradictions or errors. So he wrote a whole book. It's several hundred pages long. And, but, but as I'm reading through this, I'm thinking, but I know I, know I can explain that. And every single thing, you know, and the things that kind of I didn't understand, I went back and I studied them out, and sure enough, he's wrong. Because the Bible has no contradictions. When you understand it, it's original language. What is inspired is the original language. So now we've got so much information. You've got Esword, you've got Strong's Encyclopedia, you've got Vines, you've got books out there. And, and just in the snap of a finger, you can find out what a word means in the original language. It's amazing. We are so blessed in America. So much knowledge. But the Bible is really a collection of, of God's love letters to us. 66 love letters God wrote to all of us. He makes himself known through that book. If you want to grow or become wise or make it to heaven or live an overcoming life or break free from an addiction or know God, then we strongly urge you to read God's word every single day. If all you do is read it, you don't even have to study. Years ago, Brother Johnny... Uh, Brother Johnny Payton, who taught one of my uh, classes at Gateway, he said, you know what, kids, 
the only difference between reading your Bible and studying it is writing something down. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. I've had people ask me, how do I study the Bible? You know, the easiest way to really get to know your Bible, here's how to do it. Here's the easiest way to study it. Pick a book, any book of the Bible. Read verse 1. Pick out Ephesians or Galatians. Read verse 1 and then write that verse out in your own words. As best as you can. Read verse 2. Write it out in your own words. And if you will do that, then you will get to know that book in a very intimate way. Don't pick a big book like Psalms because it'll take you forever. Start with a tiny little book like Habakkuk with three chapters or Obadiah with two or three chapters. So start with something small and then simply write it out in your own words. And you know what? That's getting the word of God in your mind. You don't have to memorize it word for word because not everybody has a unique ability to do that. Right? As you get older, it seems like it's harder to find more time to do that. But, but if you would just read his Bible, if, if you would just read your Bible, you cannot survive spiritually on what you receive during the church services alone. You will not survive. You will find yourself struggling. There are many times that God will speak to you as an individual through his word, but he cannot do so if you are not regularly in the word of God. Discipline yourself. Everybody say discipline. To set aside time every day to read God's word. Reading God's word is like this. It's like prayer. Prayer does not begin with with a desire. You know what it begins with? A decision. I am going to pray. But I don't feel like praying. But I am going to pray. Do you feel like working out when you need to work out? Do you feel like eating healthy when you need to eat healthy? No, probably not. I never feel like eating healthy. You know, tonight I'm going to be eating french fries at some point. So, you know, I don't always feel like eating healthy. But when I do eat healthy, sometimes it's like, yeah, this is good. This is good stuff. And other times I don't want that. But if I ate everything I wanted to eat, I'd be about 300 pounds heavier. If I ate french fries every night, which I do not, for the record. (laughs) Once in a while. Okay. And so you have to discipline yourself to read God's word. But I, but I promise you this, if you will start doing it, it becomes addictive. And you will, you will start looking forward to it. There is this something holy and cleansing about picking up the Bible and just, even if you don't even understand it, there's this, even if you don't understand what it's even read, you get a sense that you're reading something really holy and that it's about God. And, and you know what, you don't even have to read it for two hours, just read it three chapters a day, what, 15 minutes? And in three to four chapters a day, you can read the Bible through in one year. That's a great accomplishment. And that's something that everybody should strive for. Amen. And so whenever you read things in God's word, turn around and live what you've read. God never intended the word to be something that was listened to but never obeyed. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But the Bible also says in James 1 and verse 22, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So if we are only hearers of the word and we are not doers, then we are self-deceived. The Bible also is a weapon against all the forces of evil. Look at Ephesians 6 and 17. And take the helmet of salvation and... The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, 
We even see Jesus using the scriptures as a weapon to defend himself. In Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, when the devil began to tempt him, what did Jesus say? Every time he said, it is written. He was grounded and firmly rooted in God's word. And I will tell you this, you are not grounded and rooted in God's word if the only doctrine and the only Bible you ever get is what you hear on Sundays and what you hear on Wednesday nights. To be grounded in the word, you have to be rooted in it. That means from from Psalms 1 and verse 1, he said, blessed is the man um, that thinks and meditates upon his word daily. In other words, his mind is constantly rooted in the or or in a Godward way towards God and not so doubt and and all these other negative qualities try to come in but instead our minds are like anchored to to God and his word and he said he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in his season and whatsoever he does shall prosper that means in whatever season you find yourself in you if it's a season of pain or a season of turmoil or a season of great difficulty if you will get in that word and keep your mind meditating in that word of God then you will be fruitful in whatever season you come like that evergreen tree there is no winter that is cold enough to kill an evergreen tree because it is forever green. And that's what you will be like. You will grow. But you have to be rooted in God's word. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You know, the Lord showed me this one day. If you look and study this verse out carefully, Everything that he described in this verse is a weapon against our flesh. Is a weapon. It's, he, we are using the word on us, piercing even to the dividing asunder of what? Soul and spirit. And of the joints and the marrow, that is the flesh. And is a discerner of the thoughts in the intents of the heart. In other words, that book can radically change your mindset. Getting in that Bible will change you from being a constant pessimist who always complains to somebody that always says, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. The only difference is one person is in the word of God and one person is not. And if you are not daily in the word, don't matter how much you pray. You will struggle because prayer renews your, your spirit, but the word renews your mind. The only way to be renewed in your mind is to get in that book and read it every day. People that struggle with offense, people who are always offended easily. You know, the Bible says, um, great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. The word offend means to cause to stumble. It means somebody that always is so sensitive, they're always getting their feelings hurt. You know what? If you love his word, it doesn't matter what's happening and who said what about you because you love God's word. And that, that is literally what would keep you from falling and stumbling. The word will challenge you, will correct you, will encourage you, will train you, will guide you, it will protect you, it will teach you, it will lighten you. This is why Paul told the young minister named Timothy, who he was training to make sure he studied God's word. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. Timothy was a seasoned minister. And Paul said this of him. Study 
to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. When Timothy was, had been in the ministry for 30 years, he was still trying to study to show himself approved unto God. That's what we are all striving for. It's not like a golden pot at the end of a rainbow. You don't suddenly arrive at it. It's a journey. It's a destination, rather. And it's something that we are striving for. John 5.39, search the scriptures for them. We think you have eternal life. And there they would testify of me. If you want to know Jesus, you got to know his word. In the New Testament, the Bereans were complimented because of their daily studying of the scriptures. Acts 17 and verse 11, as we stand and as the musicians come. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. The Bereans could not go down to the bookstore and buy a Bible for $10. Did you know that the only Bible that they ever had, one copy of a single scroll in New Testament times would have cost nearly $20,000. The only place that they could study the scriptures was in the Jewish synagogues. And no matter how far they lived from that Jewish synagogue, according to that verse, they got up and they made their way there. And they, if all they did was to sat down and listen to that rabbi read, they were in the word every day. And we in America, I'm not condemning, but, I, but I, I'm telling you, Brother Stone King went to China once and he told a story about how a man would not even, of course, in China, you, Bibles are illegal largely in mainland China. So, you know, religion is a bad thing, especially Christianity. Brother Stone King told the story about this elderly gentleman that he saw. And, and he said, this, this elderly Chinese gentleman who was filled with the Holy Ghost was a member of the True Jesus Church, which is, has millions and millions of underground followers in China, wept, and he would not read or touch his Bible with soiled hands until he went into his bathroom and he would wash his hands and he would make himself clean and then he would sit down and he would open that Bible and he would read it. And I'm not saying that you need to wash your hands, but the point is, oh, that we had that kind of respect for God's word. And I, and I, hope, I want to challenge you tonight that if your Bible, if you are one of those people that, you know, you just kind of come on Wednesdays and come on Sunday, I'm encouraging you tonight, you can make a decision to be different tonight. You know, you might think, well, you know, it doesn't feel like, it's like eating healthy, really. You know, you don't, it doesn't ever feel like it until you start doing it, then you start feeling better. And if you will just simply make a decision to read God's word, the desire will come later. Let's lift our hands right now and thank God for his word that falls like rain, that washes us from, from the world, from the filth of the world. Lord, fill our minds with your thoughts every day. There are so many things that are hounding at us, that are like attacking us from all directions, God. There's so much negativity and so many things to be angry about, Lord. So many things to lose our peace over. But I know, God, that you are calling every one of us into a place where we can daily shut our doors and open our Bibles and hear from you directly and hear not what thus says Donald Trump or the latest politician or, Ron or, 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 or Rush Limbaugh or any of those other voices that are screaming at us right now, but hear what thus saith the Lord and tune out all of those voices and listen intently to that still, small voice. I want to invite you 
you tonight to come and just find a place to pray and just renew your dedication to study God's word. Would you do that with me right now? Thank you, Jesus.